So, to begin where we began last week, because it kind of sets the flow of where we want to go. In talking about these different doctrines, these systematic doctrines that are put together in the confession of faith that me and Joey adhere to, there's a, a certain logic that we talked about that goes throughout the book. And the first is it wants to lay a foundation of primary principles or first things. And just like everything, thinking about my daughter and trying to teach her to count to ten and to do her ABCs, those things are just so important because without them, it's really difficult to function as a, a human being that can work with logic and things like that. And, and likewise, these first principles that we're talking about, God's decree, the Trinity, the person of God, the Holy Scriptures, providence and creation, and now sin and the punishment thereof, if we get these things askew, they can really affect the, the way that we view God, view Christ, view the Bible... And it's very important for us to get them situated soundly, okay? And so, the last section of these last things is sin, the fall, and the punishment thereof. I might have mixed up those words, which is okay. Um, But this is leading us somewhere. We should read this chapter of the Confession with a sense of heaviness that should sit on our hearts, much like the heaviness that should sit on our hearts like when we read through Romans chapters 1 through 3. Then we get to the end of it, that no one is righteous. No, not even one. None seeks for God. That all are corrupt in all the areas of our nature. That we would see that we're guilty under God's law. We have punishment that is due to us, and maybe worse than that, I can do nothing to to change it. To affect it, I've got corruption in my very nature. And from that polluted spring, all my actual sins flow out of that. We need a mediator. We need a better Adam. One that didn't fall, but succeeded where Adam failed. Okay, and That's where we're going. And that's where the confession wants us to go as we consider these things. And we're going to, and I hope it's not unwise, we're going to consider some somewhat... Um, high-level doctrine about the transmission of sin, but I want us to consider it just for us to know that it's important for us to at least think about these things and know the dangers of going too far either way. So I'm going to read paragraphs 2 and 3, and then we'll go, and then if we have time left, we'll do 4 and 5 as well. Okay. The plan is to get through the whole chapter today. So, last week we read about paragraph 1. And we noted that the key word there is although. Okay, That God placed man in a perfect environment. Gave him original righteousness. A righteous law, right? But Adam was seduced. It was Adam's fault. And Adam's fault alone, not God's. That he was seduced from his original righteousness and sinned against God. Here, in paragraph 2, we're going to see... The results of that fall. Our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. Paragraph 3. They being the root and by God's appointment, standing in the room instead of all mankind, The guilt of their sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation. 
being now conceived in sin, and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other misery, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless, and here's the gospel note, the Lord Jesus set them free. Okay? Here, the terrible condition that we have through the fall. And the first thing that we see here is that the result of the fall, it, sin is the primary thing that is the problem of the human heart. We read here of original sin, that's corruption of our nature and the guilt that we have in Adam, but we also read of actual sins coming from us, okay? And the, the question that we have to have and what we need to see is that sin is absolutely a terrible, terrible thing, okay? How, how are some ways that we might mitigate the terrible nature of sin? What language do we often use that mitigates that, that language? Brother? It's human nature. It's a mistake, right? Everybody messes up. Nobody's perfect. And that's true. Nobody's perfect. But the bad news is that perfection of righteousness is what God requires to be in His presence, right? Sin is something that is not considered to be a serious thing by us because we swim in it every day like water. Our nature is corrupt. We live around people with corrupt natures and we don't realize the devastation that sin and what it brings to us. Sin is something that is antithetical to God. Now, we, we've talked a lot about the law of God in the past, right? And the holiness of God is represented to us in the most clear way by the law of God where He shows us perfect righteousness and character that God desires for us, it's a reflection of who God is in His person and being. Okay, Now, if that's true, if the law represents God and His perfection, sin is the opposite of that. We know from 1 John 3, 4 that sin is the transgression of the law, or sin is lawlessness in the ESV. Right? Sin is something that goes against that revealed will of God, whether it be on our consciences or against what's been shown in the Scripture itself to be against the will of God. Okay? So sin is the opposite of God's character. Right? I remember Jeremiah Burroughs reading with John Philby, uh, The Exceeding Sinfulness of Sin, this, this Puritan writer. And he talks about sin being even worse than the devil because the devil has being, okay? And being is from God. Nothing can exist without God. But sin is something that is worse even than that. It's blacker than even the devil. The devil loves sin because it's even worse than himself, so to speak. Sin is a terrible thing. And I just want us to consider sin is that. It is transgression of the law of God. God sets a law for us to operate within, and we willingly step over that line. And really, what it equates to is it's, it's human autonomy. Okay, If sin is the transgression of the law, sin is also my choosing to make a law of my own in my own mind and to do whatever I want to do. And so, I, I think this was helpful for me. Uh, we might have heard this before. That uh, how do you spell sin? And some people would say it's spelled S-E-L-F. Has anybody ever heard that before? Okay. Well, it's not true, okay? <laughs> it's not true. Be- because it can sound true that self-love is what sin is, and that's a good definition of it, but it really fails the test. Does anybody think of any scripture that would 
that would say maybe even the opposite of that. And turn me to Ephesians 5. We know this text, right? What's that? Oh, Ephesians 5. Yeah, I... I and if... Yeah, uh, keep that in mind. I'm not sure where you're going with that. Um, but we know this text. As husbands are commanded to love their wives, we are given the example of Christ. And Paul explains further in verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, right? And love for self is not seen as the negative part there, right? It's taken for granted that all men love themselves, and that's not necessarily bad. The problem is we don't love other people like we love ourselves, right? We're also told that the second commandment of the law is to love our neighbor as what? As ourselves, right? So sin is not, I know what they're trying to say, is not self-love on its own, okay? Sin is transgression of God's law. Knowing what God said and going past it willingly. Okay? Going past it willingly. And so, as we consider what we have here today, we're considering two kinds of sin. First, original sin. And this is a difficult concept for us to wrap our minds around, mostly because we always cling to the idea that it's not fair. Right? That Adam's sin really affected us in a particular way. Now, there's some denials of that. Um, anybody think of any, any group of people that would deny original sin? <clears throat> Pelagians would deny original sin. Now, there's consequences to that. Pelagius okay, was a heretic that Augustine dealt with. Okay? And Pelagius believed that Adam's sin did not convey original guilt to us or original sin, but instead it was just an example of what we aren't to do. Okay? Now, if Adam and his sin in no way affected us that we don't have original sin, how does that affect our view of Jesus Christ? Well, yeah, and Jesus Christ's sacrifice, it merely becomes an example for us of what we're to do, right? We're born, if we're born without original sin, we have the ability in and of ourselves to perfectly obey God's law, just as Adam did in his creation, right? We have no internal corruption in us. We are able to do it, and therefore we look at Adam and say, oh, that's a bad example. We shouldn't transgress God's law, and then look at Christ and say, oh, look at that good example of a man who laid down his life for other people and lived selfish, selflessly rather, right? It, it affects how we view these things. The Eastern Orthodox Church denies original sin and says that we are able <clears throat> to do right in and of ourselves and there's nothing that impedes us. And our confession is writing against Socinianism, right? They would deny the Trinity, denied original sin, and they very much would say that man is able to obey God's law in such a way as to get him to heaven. Denying the atonement of Jesus Christ because we don't need it. Okay? So, when we think about original sin, it's really important for our whole system of doctrine, especially how we view the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we are cursed people, children of wrath, born under condemnation, in Adam all die. That's the truth of Scripture. It's in Adam that all die. 
But in Christ, all shall be made alive. Right? So, I want us to ask the question, what is original sin? And if we could answer that, what would we say? What is original sin? Yeah. First off, I just think that it's sin which comes not from immediately the act which I do, but from the origin of man. That's right. That's right. It's a sin, and the way I think it's important to look at twofold that original sin, it means that we have guilt in Adam. That were guilty before God's judgment, sheerly because of Adam's sin. We're guilty, okay? And we're corrupt because of Adam's sin, all right? We're guilty in Adam and we're corrupt because of Adam. And these, this twofold reality is what makes up the doctrine of original sin. And if we just consider that we're guilty in Adam, where would we go in the Bible to see that? Romans 5 is the key text. Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. These things, if we think of Adam and the second Adam, these two texts should really be concrete in our mind. So, consider original sin. And what we're thinking about primarily is guilt in Adam at this moment. And we'll go on to corruption. Romans chapter 5. And as we go through this, the idea is with the guilt of Adam, that Adam's sin, as he acted as the root of all mankind and the federal head of all mankind, his sin was imputed to us. Imputed is an accounting term, right? It's calculated to our account. And I want us to think about in Romans that the language of imputation is very important to Paul in his argument, right? In Romans chapter 3 and 4, it's the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us that gives us the righteousness of God. That I can stand before God because out of His free mercy and grace, God took the righteousness of the second Adam and put it into my account. But the opposite is true with Adam. That his sin was taken and put into the account of all of his offspring by natural and ordinary generation. Okay? Now, Romans chapter 5, notice verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay. Now, if we stop at that text, these are very difficult verses to go through. And we might ask what it means that death spread to all men, not just to Adam, but to all of us because all sinned. Sinned. And we could take a Pelagian position on this if we were to narrow it down. The Pelagian might say, well, see, death spread to all men, not because of Adam's sin, but because all sinned, right? But I think that the language and the, the flow that Paul is going with is trying to show us know that we all sinned in Adam. Notice, Paul in verses 13 and 14 gives, I think he anticipates the difficulty of this doctrine. And he goes to prove it through Old Testament history. He says this, 
For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, that is on Mount Sinai, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Okay? Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. And there's a couple of ways we can look at that text. Okay? I heard one guy, and I'm not totally convinced by it. I'm not totally convinced by either of these. But for us to wrestle with this text, so it could be that the two laws given, one to Adam and one to Israel, right? These are covenant laws given to both these people, both these communities. Now, the law given to Adam said what? Do this and you will live. Disobey and you will die. And the same thing was said to Israel on Mount Sinai. If you disobey my commandment, death will come to you, right? So there's a a covenant law given where there's a particular stipulation that you're going to die if you transgress the law. But in between that time, Paul's argument could be, death continued to reign. Even after those who didn't sin against that particular covenant given only to Adam in the garden, that death was the result to all mankind. And therefore, we could see that Paul is boasting this up. But it could be even that death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those whose sinning wasn't like the transgression of Adam. It could mean those that haven't had actual sins come from them, that we might say infants. It's a possibility as well. And it's taken by like Martin Lloyd-Jones. I'm not convinced by either of those particularly because this is a very difficult text. But if we continue to go on, we can see that Paul is trying to show that Adam's trespass is in some ways equivalent to what Jesus Christ has done for us. And I think the only logical thing that we come out with at the end is that Adam's sin was imputed to us. Notice verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace by that one man, Christ Jesus, abounded for many. So notice Paul's language. He's trying to show a dissimilarity between Adam, the first Adam, and the second Adam, Jesus Christ. But he says that one died through one man's trespass, right? The cause of that death was that one man's trespass. But the dissimilarity is in the free gift of grace that came through Christ. And notice verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's trespass. For judgment following one trespass, notice, brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. The dissimilarity that Paul's trying to bring up is not that they're not both federal heads and their action in this life didn't wasn't imputed, but rather it's imputed in different ways, and the grace is much greater than sin here, right? But what we should come away with is the very clear language that condemnation came through one man's sin, and many died through one man's trespass, okay? That we have original sin, meaning first and foremost, we have original guilt in and of ourselves, And as 1 Corinthians 15 says, death came to all through one man. Okay? In Adam all die, but in Christ all are made alive. Okay? 
In verse 18, just to put the cherry on top, therefore as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so the one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Really, Romans chapter 5 is very, very explicit and plain. One man's sin, Adam's sin, caused death and condemnation to come to all. Okay, And we are condemned for that one sin alone that is original to us, that we inherit from our Father. Do you have any questions about original guilt? Brother. I feel like this touches on understanding of what sin is too, Oh, yes. Yes, yes. No, yeah, and, and I, I'm with you. No, it, it does make sense. And again, in, in God's grace and mercy, what we have here is a setup for all men to be saved through Jesus Christ, right? Without this idea of federal head and being, having a mediator, right, that could impute sin or righteousness to us, it would depend on all of our individual ability to do something or another. But God, in His grace, did not want to set it up that way. But I want us to consider, we have original guilt, I think clearly explained in the Bible. Now, how that works, we don't know. But the Bible clearly says that one, the condemnation came to all men because one man sinned. Okay? But we also have original corruption. Okay? Original corruption is not just that I'm guilty in heaven because of somebody else's sin, but that I have actual corruption in my soul. You might remember we talked about Adam having original righteousness. That he, he was inclined to do right. He loved to do right. Where we're inclined to do evil. And the language is rather shocking in the confession that we're wholly inclined to this. That we have nothing in us, as Paul says, I have nothing good that dwells in my flesh. That's a, that's a difficult statement, isn't it? That in and of myself, without the restraining grace of the Spirit of God, without Him working in me, in my flesh, me considered by myself, there's nothing good. I'm not inclined to do anything right. But everything in sin. Now, we might do things that, that seem right and seem good and aren't as bad as other things, but if we do things without faith in God, without the goal of giving glory to God, the Bible calls these things properly sin. We don't have that motivation in our heart anymore. Everything we do is done for ourselves and for autonomy. Okay? So we have, yes, brother. Oh, yeah. So we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that and how. Sin is conveyed to us. How does it pass from generation to generation? How did it pass from Adam? Okay, we're going to get to that. Right now, I want us to just consider that we believe in original sin, and original sin is original guilt, which I think Romans 5 clearly teaches, and corruption of soul. 
Okay? Now, we talked about the whole corruption of our nature. That we're defiled in every single part. What text would we go through to show that? Romans chapter 3 is very good. Um, and we'll, we'll do that. Romans 3. <clears throat> and I'm going to read, I think, verses 10 through 19. Longer text, but pretty clear. <laughs> that we are defiled in every part of our soul. And that every single person is. Okay? Notice what Paul says in verse 10. As it is written... And verse 9, what he's trying to do, he's charging that Jews and Greeks are under sin. Okay? They're under sin, which means they're condemned by sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Paul bends over backwards to use universal language here. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside... Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Okay, I I think reading John Owen on this, what other language could Paul use to communicate to us that every single human being universally is corrupt inherently in their nature and completely so? Notice how he goes on to talk about the throat, the mouth, the lips, our feet. This is to show that Every part of ourselves, our body, our soul, is corrupted with sin. Okay? Their throat is an open grave. What, what should that convey to us? No life in it. What, what about to a Jewish mind? What's an open grave? It's defiled that it's unclean, right? Their throat, when we open our mouths as natural human beings, there's uncleanness and vileness in it. Okay? Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Instead of speaking the truth as God does, we use them to to deceive other people. Notice the venom of asps is under their lips. This probably is meant to communicate that there's there's life-destroying toxin, but it's hidden in the words that we speak. That is, that we speak even good to one another. We, We try to appear like we're speaking kindly and goodly, but there's hidden venom in what we're doing. Okay? Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Okay? That we have corruption of soul and we're wholly defiled by that corruption. Everyone is wholly defiled. Nothing good in our flesh. Okay? What other text will we turn to? We'll take two more. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Genesis chapter 6. And again, we read these things, we're used to seeing them, but the language that the Bible uses is... Very shocking and striking. The universal language about us being wholly defiled. Okay? Notice verse 5. From the perspective of God. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and notice this, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
And as Brother Joey has pointed out, Pastor Joey, that we might think, well, that was just before the flood. But immediately after the flood, when there's only one family of human beings that existed on the earth, Noah, the righteous man, we see that the same thing is said by God. Notice in Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8, this is after the flood subsides. In verse 20, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of clean burden offered a burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That is, the first act before any sin is actually committed, the intention of man's heart is evil from the very time that they're a young, young child. From his youth. And then, lastly, uh, we, we just might consider Jeremiah 17.9 and its strength. Jeremiah 17.9. The heart, we know this text, the heart is deceitful above what? All things. Isn't that amazing? If we think about it. The devil is the father of lies. Our heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately sick. Not just sick. Not just has a sniffle or a fever that needs a couple of days to be healed. It's desperately sick. There's nothing that can cure it. And then the last thing, who can understand it? The heart's so deceitful, so wicked, so sick, we can't even try to search our own hearts to understand it. Okay, We're corrupted in our soul, and this corruption comes from Adam. And I think that we can show that from a few texts. First, I just want to draw your attention to Genesis 1.27, where God says that He creates man in His own image. Right? In his own likeness, God created man and we were created that original righteousness, that holiness of nature. But in Genesis chapter 5, when Adam starts to bear fruit, do you remember what it says? He, yeah, that's right. Adam had a son. Oh, we'll read it. We'll read it because the, the author of Genesis, the Holy Spirit, is not uh, making a mistake here. Notice what said. This is the book of the generations of Adam in verse 1 of Genesis 5. When God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, He created them. And He blessed them and named them man when they were created. And notice, when Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his own image and named him Seth. Now, if the likeness of God, and I think explained in the New Testament, is in part righteousness and holiness, Adam creating a son in his own image is that corruption of nature being spread on. But we also have other texts in Scripture that I think clearly talk, speak to this. Uh, Psalm 51, that wonderful repentance of David. And David, in his repentance, he talks about being corrupted from the time of his first birth. Notice, David says this in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my 
mother conceive me. And this is true of all people. Brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. In Job 14, you know, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? Right? No, not one. Right? A leopard can't change his spots, Jeremiah says. An Ethiopian can't change its skin color. And so us, naturally sinners, we cannot change our own nature. We from Adam inherit guilt under God's hand that deserves eternal punishment. And we inherit also corruption. And as we're going to see next week probably, that it's from this corruption of our souls, that we're twisted in our souls. We are inclined to evil. That's where all sin comes from. All actual sin. All transgression of God's law. Now, last thing I want us to consider is how, how this corruption of soul and guilt is conveyed from Adam to us. Okay? Now, again, I, I, I fear doing this because I, I think that it could be unhelpful, but I think it could be helpful as well. So please stay with me. Don't throw tomatoes. That's my new favorite thing to ask people not to do. Um, notice paragraph 3. <clears throat> they being the root. And in our confession, this agrees with the Westminster so far, but the Savoy Declaration, that's the Congregationalists and the, the Baptists added this. Not because the Presbyterians disagreed, but because they thought it was clear. And by God's appointment, standing in the room instead of all mankind. The guilt of sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed. That's what we're looking for. Corrupted nature was conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. And you can underline that in your mind. By ordinary generation. Being now conceived in sin, and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, and the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. And the real question that we have here is if you'll notice that this corrupted nature and the guilt is conveyed by ordinary generation. Okay? It's conveyed by ordinary generation. And the question that you have is that by ordinary generation, are the authors of the confession trying to put forth a theology that would say that the mode by which sin is conveyed is through the act of procreation? Okay? That is what some would call, big word, traducianism. Okay? That sin is more or less passed on genetically from father to son, father to daughter. Okay? Or that the two human natures, and really the idea that's been put forth is just like two physical bodies come together and they make a new person that's a combination okay, of their physical DNA. And that the same thing happens in the soul. That the soul is created through that, that, that sexual union and somehow the soul of the man and the woman come together and they create a new soul. Okay? It's traducianism. That's Lutheran. Okay? And the, the Roman Catholic Church actually calls that heresy, but that's probably only because it's Lutheran. Right? <laughs> um, but Lutheranism believed that, and, and they would uh, point to Hebrews 7, 9, and 10 with uh, Melchizedek and Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, or the Levites tithed to Melchizedek through his loins kind of idea. Okay? But the more common view among um, 
Catholics, Protestants, Puritans is what's called creationism, that God creates every soul and infuses it into a human body. Okay? Now, justification for this view, and the Bible doesn't speak clearly about this in either way. That's why I'm on edge talking about it. Okay? But Hebrews 12.9 talks about God is the father of spirits. Okay? He, uh, Ecclesiastes says that when we die, the body goes to the dust and the spirit goes to God who made it. Okay? That there's an idea that God makes every human soul and puts it in to the body. Now, why these things are important, again, is how corruption of nature comes. Because the problem that creationism would have, that God creates every soul and puts it into the body, is where does the corruption come from? Does that make God the author of sin? Does God put corruption in our nature, in our souls, and then give it to us? Where traducianism would kind of avoid that by saying, well, it's two sinners coming together and God is somewhat hands-off with the matter because it's just their genetic passing on. Okay, The, the Catholics kind of have a different view of creationism, which would be the, I forget the Latin name, but it's the, the sperm that actually conveys the, the corrupt nature. And that's because Christ obviously didn't have the male counterpart in the reproductive act, they would say that. Okay, so that's the, the two ideas here. And what we're trying to get at and why they're important to consider is making God the author of evil on the one hand, okay, but traducianism on the other has some insuperable difficulties about it and how that happens to human bodies coming together. And I, I really think that a way that we can think about this is that this is what Owen and Keats said, and it doesn't mean that they're right. I think that they are, though. That God didn't put corruption into our souls um, as a him creating evil, but that we are made corrupt as a punishment for sin. Now, what I mean by that is we can read Romans chapter 1, right? That the corruption of any society and group of people is seen because God gives them over to their own sinfulness, right? And the corruption of soul is in fact a byproduct and a judgment of God upon a people, right? We can be with, are we with me so far? Okay. And I think that logically if we consider this, if we think that original sin, right, is sinful enough to deserve guilt and condemnation and eternity in hell by the hand of God, it certainly is worthy of God giving us over to corruption of soul. Now, this is just a theory, but I think that it, it does have some merit to it, that God punishes sinners by giving them up to corruption. And I'm just going to read a, a little passage that I think was helpful. Um, by John Owen, Benjamin Keach here, um, because I think that that's what we're left with. And I think it can be. So Nehemiah Cox actually says this, the imputation of Adam's sin to his posterity, by which they are most justly accounted to have sinned in him, okay, that's original guilt, who was the root and both the generative and the federal principle of mankind is in some sort the meritorious cause of the inherent depravity of the human nature derived from him, which is diffused throughout all the parts of the soul. And notice this, and it is a just punishment for the first offense. It's a just punishment for the first offense. 
by which we are turned away from God and disposed to all wickedness, it being the root, seed, and principle of all actual transgressions and sins. And therefore, so frequently by the Apostle Paul called sin in the way of emphasis and the flesh. It's called the flesh in a negative way. By which all abominations that are in the world are the proper fruit and offspring are so represented by him. And so, it's conveyed by natural generation. I don't think that what that means is by propagation, the mode of which sin is transmitted is from human to human. Because I, I don't believe traducianism is true. Okay, But that by ordinary generation, it sets up for us two classes of people. Okay? Those who have original sin imputed to their account are those who come from Adam by natural generation. And all that does is merely set us up for there's another class of person that is not going to have original, right, original sin imputed to their account. And that's Jesus Christ himself, who does not come by natural generation. And this is what the scripture itself points to when it says that the woman is going to bear a, a seed that's going to crush the serpent's head. There's going to be another class of person that doesn't have original sin, that's going to be able to reverse the curse that has been made for us. And so I hope I didn't ruin the whole flow of that by introducing that can of worms at the end. But by application, I just want us to see that every human being born into the world is hopeless in Adam. We're born with guilt already on our account. We're born with a soul and a body that is twisted and bent to do all kinds of corrupt things. Okay? But we are in a most hopeful condition if we are in Jesus Christ. Because we are imputed and put into a man who does not have original sin, does not have original guilt, that has original righteousness and peace, and this second Adam succeeded in every way where the first Adam failed. Um, And next week we're going to talk about how this matters to us, that we still have original corruption even as believers. We still have corruption of soul. Yeah, brother. So the language of confession, <clears throat> is it meant specifically to deny Jewishism? Or were there people that believed in Jewishism and this was language that could exclude that? We, so I don't know if they specifically meant to deny traditionism. I know that all the Puritans were creationists. So we know what the framers believed. I don't want to make such a hard line on that that it's important, but I think it's important to think about what it, what it speaks about God and how the sinful nature is conveyed. And it's enough for us to say it is conveyed, but I think that viewing it as a just punishment for original sin, I think it makes, I think it makes some sense. That's all I'm going to say about that. Any other questions? Brother. Yeah. 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 Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. No, I, I know what you're saying, and the Bible's using two different ways of talking about the same thing. Okay. And we say that we're dead, we're, we're trying to show a desperate situation in which there is no help. And Jeremiah 17 isn't saying anything different, right? Especially if we consider it. Um, it's, it's desperately sick. There's no way out of it, right? 
And so I, I don't think that that's a denial that we're dead in trespasses and sin. It's just another way of viewing it. Any other questions? I know this is hard, some of it. Okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us. Lord, we come before you, and uh, I certainly don't uh, desire to confuse your people, nor to uh, lead us into things that are unhelpful. But God, I, I do pray that we would see that the Bible really does affirm that we inherit guilt from our first parents. And, God, that we inherit corruption from our first parents. And therefore, we're put into a state where we have no hope in ourselves, but we must fly to another who can save us. And we praise you that, God, you've made a way through Jesus Christ, a man born not by ordinary generation, but specially created for the purpose of saving man. A new Adam, a new perfect sinless son of God was made that we might be saved. Lord, we love you. I pray you help us to trust your word, um, even though the doctrines are difficult and that you would help us to think, think rightly about your word. In Jesus' name, amen.